Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcast Network. Okay, so, um, we'll keep talking about disorders, then we'll get his main choice. Uh, right, so we talked a little bit about suicide and how it couldn't be group select. Well, it could be, it's exceedingly unlikely because group selection that's important, right? Because one selfish gene kills group selection every time. There is one possible time that I've heard of where there might have been group selection, and that's with viruses killing rabbits in Australia in the 50s. And that still might not be true. It still might not be true. Uh, I quickly point out the story. So they have all these rabbits in Australia, you know, invasive species. Um, the rabbits catch a kind of flu that's going to kill the rabbits. You know, the Aussies are like, yay, because we're considered this invasive species. What ends up happening is, with, as with most viruses, of course, the goal is to make as many copies of yourself as possible. Um, so the idea is that the reproductive strategy is make as many of you as you can. The problem is when you make a lot of you when you're a virus, you get killed. Right? If you're something that kills. If you're something, and this was a, a sort of influenza that killed rabbits. I might kill some people in the hall um, So... The selective pressure individually would be what? It would be make as many copies of yourself as you can. What's that do, though? That kills all the hosts. Right? Doesn't kill it, kills the hosts. So what we do instead is you don't get so virulent. So in fact, instead of being a really virulent strain of a virus, of that virus, the most common version was a non-lethal strain. So they still have rabbits in Australia. So it was a non-lethal strain. Now, non-lethal means you don't make as many copies of yourself. But that helps the group. That's the one time. And I read another paper that said it probably is group selection anyway. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, I don't see how that's group selection because just over time, the non-virulent strain mm -hmm. would just have multiple... There's so many more possible uh, targets to infect that the reproductive advantage of yeah. of killing it, of killing the yeah. the holes, yeah. wouldn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's the that's the argument against it being group selection. Um, but I can see the argument for it being group selection too. So I mean, it's it's the one example people tend to use saying, "Oh, that might be group selection." Um, we are, that is, however, a very specific situation. That's when we have one host for a, a parasite, well, not a parasite, but a disease, a virus. So it's really hard to say that we ever get group selection. So suicide certainly isn't group selection, as we talked about. Um, it's more like kin selection, right? Bill Hamilton's idea, you know, but kin selection, the idea that you um, make that calculation, which I talked about the other day, which is how many related uh, genes are you saving and in fact, uh, suicide notes reflect this. People feel they're a burden. Um, I, I met Bill Hamilton. It was an amazing experience uh, because I didn't know who he was, and, now I, and I was horribly embarrassed afterwards. Uh, I was in Oxford, um, and I was walking on the street, 
and a guy with a, a guy with Alex Kaselnik, who's a zoologist at Oxford. I'm walking. He's showing me around. It was like a job. It was a job interview, basically. I was offered it, but anyway. But I'm here, um, which is good because I wasn't. Madeline would talk like this, which would be weird. Um, so we're walking down the street, and Alex introduces me to Bill. He says, "Hello." He says. David will be speaking. I can't do Alex's accent because it's, it's Argentinian and British. And I, I can't do that. Um, David's going to be speaking tomorrow. And he's like, Oh, yes, of course, Broadbeck. Yes, the work with the chickadees. Wonderful. <laughs> I've seen some of it. Very nice. I'll be there for sure. Very good. Very, very nice to meet you. Very pleasant man. Shakes hands a bit. And, you know, he goes on his merry way out to go to perhaps a pub. I don't know. It's England. And... Then I realize who it is after he leaves. And I look at Alex Kasanik and I said, he's Bill Hamilton. And he said, you know you have more publications than he does. And I said, none of mine really changed biology. Uh, And he said, no, that's true. But it was amazing. That was cool because he came. He was there and Richard Dawkins was there. And I was like up in front of these people speaking going, no, that's something. And yeah, Oxford. Well, you get used to it when you're in Oxford because, like, the whole zoology department's famous. Everybody's famous. You go, oh, it's you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and I've seen all of you everywhere. It's amazing. So the moral of that story is, I'm an idiot because um, I didn't recognize the guy. He sees picture in every biology book. Like, you know what he looks like, right? So shifting gears, uh, let's talk about anxiety disorders. We talked about that. Phobias. We've talked a little bit about this before, I think. Phobias are the ultimate, ultimately easy thing to treat, first of all. Um, you treat phobias in like four hours. So with classical and opera conditioning, it's easy. Nice thing. This is not, phobias are not how therapists save enough money to buy a boat. It's more with people that are, have fear, fear of commitment. That's the of your money. Because uh, those people come forever. But phobias seem to be learned. Okay, and I think I talked about this out about social learning um, and about how I'm afraid of bees because my dad was afraid of bees. I'm certain that's why. Right? I saw my dad run away from bees. Great big, powerful, scary man. He'd like run away from ah! you know? And I'm like that with bees. And it's more about trying not to pass it on to my son. When a bee comes, I say, it's okay, everything'll be fine. And meanwhile, my synthetic nervous system's kicked in, my pupils are dilating. It's interesting though, no one's afraid of houses, cars, right? Yeah, you might be afraid of driving because you're not a very good driver, right? But it's not like if I say the word car, your heart starts beating really fast and you use it with nervous system kicks in. Um, no one's afraid of houses. Man, these are the sort of human-made objects. They're afraid of these kind of things. Sharks. Things that are sensible to be afraid of, though, in our context on this, this part of the world. Well, there is one kind of snake that is uh, uh, poisonous in this part of North America. But you don't run into them very often. Sharks, there aren't any sharks up here. People are afraid of flying, but not airplanes overhead, even if they've been through bombings. And sieges, I talked about that before. We're afraid of flying, that's being really high up in the air, but not afraid of airplanes overhead. 
Those are sensible things. By the way, if you lived through the bombing of your city, I think it would be a sensible reaction to be frightened of airplanes, separate airplanes. People are. It's fascinating. And this, again, makes an evolutionary sense to be ready to be afraid of things like these, these things here. But not everybody is afraid of those things. It's like you have too much of it. Right? And I mean, when I say afraid, a phobia is a real debilitating fear. It's not just... Look, if there was a snake on the floor, I, think, I don't think anybody here would go, cool. I think most of us go, oh, God. What's that doing there? But, you know, somebody in here, perhaps, though, who's actually has a phobia of it would... would, would have a panic attack. That's the difference. Okay, let's switch gears to sociopaths or psychopaths. Sociopath is more of a. I talked to Paul about this. Uh, he knows more about a lot of this stuff than I do, uh, especially in sort of forensic psychology, that kind of thing. And he says that he likes, he prefers to be a psychopath to sociopath. Uh, so, fair enough. I think our book uses sociopath, but trust Paul a bit more than that. Uh, first thing, of course, your reaction should be to sociopaths. Um, because it's kind of nasty, right? These are very unpleasant people. Now, most of them are not. Most psychopaths are not. Paul Bernardo, right? Or Ted Bundy. Most of them are killers. Or American Psycho. There's a movie. <laughs> Friend of mine was in that movie. Which is kind of cool. The guy I know from was the narrates Mayday. It was, yeah, he was in that movie. He wasn't the star. Yeah, well, he's, he's an actor. That's his job. This is my job. Everybody has a job. The older you get, the more times you realize that, oh, yeah, I know a famous this, a famous that, or whatever, because you've been around longer. <laughs> That's all it is, right? It's not like I went to that fame high school. Um, <laughs> it was just for me, because that show was on before we were born. Um, okay. This might be a reproductive strategy that is successful if it's rare. It is successful to not care about others whatsoever and have no emotional attack or reaction to them. But that's only a word if it's rare, because then people will trust you. Right? So we're talking about little shame or guilt. We talked about the evolution of those emotions before. So very little of this. So you end up with people that sexually assault people, for example. But it doesn't have to be that. You don't have to be, I don't know, Gian Gomeshi. You could be, what's up with that guy? Never liked him? I didn't know about this, though. <laughs> um, this can just be manipulating others for your own personal gain. Right? And it's often said that most successful corporate CEOs are somewhere on the psychopath scale. You know, most successful politicians, even the ones you like, by the way. You're all like, yeah, I know Stephen Harper's horrible. Yeah, so is Tom Mulcair and so is uh, uh, Justin Trudeau. I'm sure they're all psychopaths a little bit. You don't get that successful without, or in Barack Obama, I'm naming people I like, by the way. Just to be clear about that. Yeah, they step on little people too. I'm not saying all of them, I'm saying it's just as likely. What they do is they play on reciprocal altruism. That's the ultimate thing, right? Oh, I'll do. I'll totally do something for you later. <laughs> See, that's going to work as reproductive strategy, but only if it's rare, because now we're going to stop trusting anybody if this is common, right? 
there's an idea here out there that I don't like very much, but I thought I'd mention it because I think it's in the book. The idea that the behavior, the sort of psychopathic behavior, gives them an outlet. Um, maybe we should give uh, for their weirdness. You know, maybe we should give them an outlet. Then maybe we should allow them to have their weird behavior in a very safe environment, perhaps a virtual environment, something like that. I'm not entirely sure. I'm not sure that helps. It's sort of this almost Freudian notion of catharsis. And I don't think I like that very much. Because it doesn't seem to work with anything else, you know. It's like people say, just vent your anger. In fact, that's just the worst thing you can do. It just makes you more angry. So it's almost like, well, why don't we just let them vent their psychopathic rape fantasies? No. Instead, how about no? Uh, you know, because... I think, you know, like the, at least the data with, with, with anger shows that it makes it worse. So I think this might just make things worse. The problem is, treating people like this is hard. Even if it is the case that it's about shame and guilt, it's about playing over well, I think we buy that, but treating it is hard. So I went from the sort of easiest thing to treat, which is phobias, to the hardest thing to treat, which is like a second. All right. Well, autism, uh, which is something that interests me because, of course, my son. Um, this is characterized by a lack of social interaction or poor interaction. Basically, people don't know how to interact socially. It's not that they don't want it. Very rarely, when you actually talk to people about autism, and the data are getting more and more clear on this, it used to be that people said, I don't know what this I get stuffy. I'm getting a little bit of the main things. Um, used to be people said that autistic people didn't want to interact with others. It doesn't seem to be true when you ask autistic people. They seem to be like, no, I want to. I just don't know how. I don't know how. So they have to be taught things that we all just look take for granted. You know. So mostly it's poor interaction, not knowing how to interact. You know, I've had to, with my son every day before he, I drop him off at school, I list all these things he's to do and not to do. You know, you're to do this, you're to do this, pay attention, try your best, all this stuff. Here's what you're not going to do. Right? And almost every day he's like, yep, 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 because it becomes automatic, so I switch him up. Trip him up a little bit, then I look at him and go, you're going to do inappropriate things? Oh, no, 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 didn't mean that. <laughs> so repetitive behavior is pretty common, the hand flapping, that kind of thing. Oftentimes a fixation on some characteristic or thing. Um, Former student of mine, David Gass, who actually uh, is on the autism spectrum, he has Asperger's. Um, David just completed his master's thesis, and it was on autistic obsessions. One of the people he interviewed was my son. He also interviewed us. Um, my son's uh, obsessed with plane crashes. Um, many people with autism probably about fifty percent are mentally retarded. Um, Somewhere like below IQ of seven, um, but not all. And the percentage seems to be going down in, in some sort of way, and that's probably because tests are getting better at being designed to tap into the intelligence that people have without having te IQ tests are normalized on normal populations, which of course makes complete sense, right? John's been tested, and there are things that he scores really low in that I know he doesn't 
that he's not really low end. And in fact, when he was assessed, the person said, this isn't a really good measure of his ability because I know that he can do X, Y, or Z. For example, his, um, he did the whisk. So it was a writing part, wrote a little, wrote a little story, and like an essay kind of thing, a short thing. And he didn't write it. He pretended to write it. He just squiggled on his face. Because <laughs> he, was, he was tired and it was up. Thing is, um, he makes videos where he scripts the whole thing. Right? Check out his YouTube channel at John Brother. Okay, and you can see 400 videos he's uploaded. He makes using GoAnimate. They're a little weird, they all have the same theme, someone gets grounded. But there's this subculture of people that make these, these videos. It's really weird, and they all know each other. It's really strange. It really is. And there's like 50 of these kids the worldwide. And I, I don't know if they have autism, but they all seem to have something going on. And, uh, like he's got his own thing where he's got an animated version of himself and it's called Ask John Broadback and then they ask him questions it's like will you make a video about this and he's like and then he changes his voice sometimes he has an Australian accent <laughs> lately he's been talking like this which is really weird um, so he actually can write he just doesn't like writing stuff down so the tests aren't so I think that's why the percentage is going down but a lot of I mean a lot of people are that's the retards now about half. But it used to be like 99% were, and, now we're, and then I remember 10 years ago they said 70%, now the sources say about half. I think it's probably even less than that, but the sources right now say half, so we'll go with that. So, what's the evolutionary argument for autism? Um, okay. One of the things that they have real trouble with is understanding how other people think. In fact, you have to literally teach them how to sort of what's called mind read, but I mean, they're not, not in a sort of psychic way, in this, which, because that's bullshit, in the knowing how you think. So that explains the problem with the interaction problem, right? Because if I don't know how you think, I don't know how to behave to be pleasant with you, to, to, to interact with you. So it's the whole module about that has to do with theory of mind. That's one possibility. When you have to explain to somebody, for example, you're not supposed to, you can't just get up and yell in the middle of a class. No one didn't tell you that in school, right? And if you did it, you knew it. Like, you, you knew, I'm making a mistake right now, right? Kids like John, they have to be taught that. That part of school is sitting down, paying attention, putting your hand up, ask questions, which he's all very good at, by the way. It could be that this is an idea that um, uh, Simon Baron Cohen has. You may, that name may also sound familiar because his cousin is Sasha Baron Cohen, and that's Borat. But Simon Baron, which is pretty amazing. So Simon Baron Cohen is one of the world's leading experts in autism, uh, Department of Psychology at Cambridge University in the UK. And he has this idea that it's the hyper-male brain. Um, So it's very good at spatial tasks, typically. Remember the spatial difference between males and females? Not as good at social interactions. There's all kinds of interesting sex differences in social interactions. They're very subtle. Detecting emotion. Women are better than men at that. It's subtle as hell on a face. It's a pretty subtle thing, like, like an expression on a face. Women will detect happiness or sadness half a second earlier than men will when you watch 
a video of, a, of an expression changing, a real expression, but you can't do fake expressions. Dave? Yep. What about uh, girls that are on the spectrum? It's still, explain, I think it's still, his idea here is it's still a hyper-male brain, mm -hmm. right? So it's still some sort of developmental process that's screwed up because of genes and a gene environment interaction. Um, it's interesting that kids of scientists are more likely to be autistic than kids of non-scientists. It's way more common for kids of scientists to be autistic than kids of non-scientists. Because part of the, one of the characteristics that makes a good scientist is the ability to focus on something and look, look, for, look for relationships between things, right? If you get too much of that, you might end up with, if you get the right amount, you've got me. You get too much, you get John, right? Boys are way more likely to do this than girls. I've seen ever, uh, uh, Estimates as much as a six to one difference. I know kids, I don't like a few kids with autism because John goes out with these sort of playgroups and stuff like that. Um, the way more, even in that case, just I think totally, way more guys than girls. Uh, Barry Cohen has developed what he's called the uh, autism quotient. It's a, it's a 50 item test. Um, it's not a diagnostic tool, it's used as a research tool, but it, when you take the test, so you can't take that test and diagnose yourself. Please don't. Please don't. But, and because he would say you do not too. It doesn't diagnose autistic people, but autistic people score in a certain way on it. Uh, it's a 50, I think it's 50 items. Uh, if you score above 35, usually we call you either high-functioning autistic or have Asperger's. I score 32. Um, so I have many of these characteristics, but not so much that it's clinical. My son would score about a 40, 42 or something like that. You should actually give it to him and see what he would score. It's got questions like, do you like, you know, order in your life? Things like that. So it's kind of going to be hard for him to answer. He's 13. It's hard to, hard to answer anybody to answer that with but I get really upset when, when things are asymmetrical. It bothers me like crazy. I just keep it quiet, that's all. Because I know it's a little weird. I hate walking odd numbers of steps places. And I count my steps. It's not debilitating. It's a little weird, that's all. I often say to Jonathan, you know, that's weird, but I don't know if that's the autism there, son, or here's the weird kid. <laughs> I think it's sometimes what half and half, yeah. Because when I was a kid, when I was his age, I was obsessed with the Second World War. To the point of everything was about the Second World War, every answer I gave in like every class somehow related to some sort of operation. <laughs> Isn't that like the Operation Torch Landings in uh, October of 1943? He's like, well, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> I just learned to turn that off. Though there is no opposition on the genius switch. Um, it's an old letter of mine. Okay, so schizophrenia is another interesting one. Schizophrenia, by the way, for those of you who don't know this, is not multiple personality disorder, which is a thing that may not even exist. Schizophrenia is a real thing. It involves hearing voices and paranoia. It's what we, for those of you that aren't psychology students, it's, to use a technical term, it's what we'd like to call crazy people. 
right? If you're walking down the street and you see a guy yelling at the top of his lungs at nobody, he's probably schizophrenic. It's very disturbing behavior. And it's bad for everybody. There's no, oh, it's just eccentric and you're just, you're just trying to impose your will on him. You're the man. Shut up. Um, no, this is never good. This has never been thought of as good. We used to call this demonic possession. I mean, this is not a good thing. Um, now, this creativity goes schizophrenia, and I've heard this a lot. Um, and you hear this a lot, you know. You know, the insane are also very creative. Uh, probably not. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that when you look at people with schizophrenia, if you try to measure their creativity, we talked about how hard it is. People with schizophrenia, their relatives are more creative than you would expect by chance. So it might have something to do with making weird connections, because parents' schizophrenia literally involves thinking that there is a giant conspiracy out there, usually run by, oh, I don't know, used to be the communists. It's out of favor now. The Jews are always appalled, you know, one that people like blaming things on. Uh, now I think Obama is a good one. People like to blame him for things. Uh, you know, you know, there's chemtrails in the sky. Now, those people aren't crazy. They're just, they're not like schizophrenia. They're just bat, different term, batshit crazy. But, or you know, it's a inside job, man. There's people like that. It is like idiots. That's different. I'm talking about somebody who says, and you know why I know? Because thoughts are being beamed into my head by aliens. Then that's when you go, oh, I see. <laughs> now, you think about that. It is kind of creative in a way. The schizophrenic people aren't necessarily creative, but their relatives are more creative. So maybe there's some interesting relationship there. This is really early days. I think some of the best stuff here, I think the depression stuff's good, and I think the autism stuff's pretty reasonable, and the phobia stuff's good. I think the stuff on psychopaths, <laughs> schizophrenia, this is tough. Um, we know what causes it, at least like we know how to treat it. That's the good thing, you can drug goes away. That's nice. Unlike everything, everything else we talked about here. So schizophrenia is interesting. I had a prof out of psychopathology and he pronounced it like this. Schizophrenia. Cracking on the right hand screen? It's the worst thing ever. Oh well, not mine. It's the universities. All right, conclusions. This all sounds all very early days. Uh, it's promising, but it's early days. We've got to keep that in mind. Um, this may lead to some sort of treatment. I don't yet see how, but it could. It doesn't make it all in the head or normal or better, really, to be normal. You've got to keep that in mind, too, the whole naturalistic fallacy thing. So just because something is a psychological disorder, I'm really hoping that's a It doesn't make it, like I said, just because something's a psychological disorder, people are like, what's well, over your head? Well, yeah, but that's still, you're ill, and it still is a, or disorder, if you want to use that term. And it still means that you have a problem of some sort. And of course, at its root, everything eventually is going to be organic. So that's, that's a criticism that people ever le levy at sort of people with psychological disorders. Um, I don't get it. By the way, this background here, this is something John drew when he was in grade four. Um, and it's a CPA friend. 
And so it actually shows that he's understanding the idea of being friends with somebody. And he got a two out of four on it. So uh, I got a little mad. So it's actually hanging up in our house. That was down. He didn't give a shit. He didn't care. It's like, I don't care. Really. Ridiculous. That's <coughs> no, be a friend. I think it's, I'm just assuming. Yeah, it's be a friend. Because they were doing you know how they did stuff about in school, which I think they should, about how to be nice with other people and all that kind of stuff. You know, that's cool. Curious for the fixation. Yeah. Is there like a certain period of time that it goes for? I mean, I don't know much. No, no. I think it just starts and goes forever. <laughs> um, no, but you know, you fix it on like certain. Things. Oh yeah. Changes. I mean, I know with, with they they can change from time to time. Oh, okay. Um, so it's not like a set. Kind not of necessarily. Time. John's gone from tr- uh, plane crashes to cars. Uh, he got obsessed so much with cars that he would watch videos on YouTube of used car salesmen demonstrating cars. Which he watched one yesterday and he hadn't watched one for like five years. And I went, you're back to watching that crap? And he said, no. And he turned it off. Because he's like embarrassed. I said, no, if you like it, that's cool. I, I'm not going to... I just think it's stupid. But if you like it, that's cool. Um, but then back to plane crashes. But then to something else. Then back to plane crashes have always been there. Does he um, really like movies too? He likes movies a lot. Um... He likes movie production, the idea of movies. He doesn't care about the story as much as the... And again, he's a 50-year-old boy, they don't care about stories anyway. They want to see explosions. Um, but he knows about production companies. He knows about uh, actors and all their credits. He knows about producers. He knows about editors and sound mixers and things like that, too. So he'll invent a movie um, and write a little treatment about it, but it won't be able to story. Whenever I ask him, what's, what's it about? Don't ask him about the plot. He really doesn't want to talk about the plot. Yeah, yeah. Does like, the complexity of their obsessions kind of speak to their functioning? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think it might. Yeah, because I've seen like severely autistic children. Like, they have their obsessions, but it's nothing. Like, there could be nonverbal, or they can just say maybe one word. Yeah. Like, but they really like jars. Yeah, or uh, yeah. buggies, the cart man. One of the boys my mom has respite care with. She would bring him to my work just so she knows I can, you know, convince the grocery guy to go and get three carts and make him happy. Right. Like, it's yeah. just, but that's all he says. He'll just say cart man. Wow. Yeah. Maybe he's talking about the, uh, the so far. I mean, the interesting thing is, I mean, with, with John, he always has come back to the playing matches. That's been something since he was about four. But it's to the point now, like you can actually literally ask him about any plane crash. You can, he hasn't done this in a while, but sometimes he says, let's, let's play uh, accidents and incidents. And I pull up the accidents and incidents and uh, aviation webpage on Wikipedia, and I just say, all right, uh, Air Transat Flight 747. And he's like, on August 26th, 2001, took off from Toronto on its way to Lisbon. Captain Robert Pichet had to land the plane. See, I know it too, yeah. <laughs> um, I think in the Azores Islands, because of uh, fuel leak, and it's like, I said, what happened on landing? Everybody okay? Everybody was okay. 
eight tires blew out. So how many tires are on the 747? It's 12. Why look at me like, how do you not know it's 12? Does anyone know there's 12 tires in the 747? So stuff like that you can do um, to go enjoy that. If you really want to get a bit of an idea of interact, what interacting with him is like, um, he has a podcast that he does with me that we record sometimes on the way home from school. And uh, it's at, uh, if you go to the website for this is on my podcast, broken-area.com, and then you click on the Jonathan Files. And that's because he used to interrupt our podcast so much that he gave his own show. <laughs> um, you can also, if you start from the beginning, when he has a really high voice, and then you can hear his voice change, which is weird, because now he talks like this. Well, not quite like that, but I think his voice is horrifying. But if you get a really, really insight into the movie stuff. He also, I mean, I remember during the, um, it's the strangest thing, after the Boston Marathon bombing, I said, who do you think did it? He said, Russians, probably Russians. And it's like, I said, they can't be right. And of course, he was right. <laughs> so, and at the end of the day, I said, because he's going for Halloween as an air crash investigator from the NTSB. Uh, uh, and he's going to be carrying the black box from uh, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. That's, that's his, so then that's the candy in that. But. And I said, what do you think happened to Malaysia Airlines Flight 370? He says, uh, some sort of mechanical failure? I said, really? Is that your guess? Because I thought, we should record this. Because next thing you know, I'm sure Anderson Cooper will show up. Oh, just a child has theory. Because, <laughs> you know, CNN, that's all they care about. So anyway, if you listen to that, you get a pretty good idea of what it's like interacting with them. But also the idea that, like I said, the intelligence thing is weird because there are times when he's saying, like, he's not paying attention to me. He but then there's other times when you can have, it's like you're having a normal conversation with him. Why don't you talk about airplane crash in the room? All right. Another question about that? All right. Um, so a mate choice of mating and humans are. Okay. Okay, here's some questions you might get asked. Right, can I buy a drink? You might get asked that one in a park. Usually women get asked that by men. Would you like to ride with me? There's another question you get, right? I never got even this far. I just look at women and go cry. That's usually my approach. No, it's true. Um, it's a little less likely for you to get asked. I'm sure it happens. But this was actually done by Clark and Hatfield in 1989. So they went up to equal numbers of so they had women going up to men and men going up to women and asking these questions. Equal numbers here. In fact, just so that everybody says, sure, you buy a drink. And equal numbers here, it's maybe around 50%, you know, of the. That's actually higher than that. It was like, it was a pretty high number. Uh, this was a university campus, like a university bar kind of situation, and people were trying to meet other people. So yeah. Why not? And they went made sure people didn't have money rings on and things like that. Like they weren't playing people to cheat on The final question, 70% of men said, sure. And they just met the person. Literally just met us. Okay. <laughs> and not a single woman said yes. <laughs> Anybody in the room surprised at all about these numbers? Yeah, no. Right? No one's surprised. So there's a difference here, clearly. I don't think we, we need to deny it. I think explaining it's fun. I think saying patriarchal society, blah, blah, blah. Whatever. Why does that exist? So let's explain this. Instead of, you know, let's, let's just explain what's going on. All right. So 
Sexual selection, intra and intersexual selection, there's natural selection and there's sexual selection, okay? Sexual selection is what happens during mating. Um, within, this is within a sex, so within males or within females. So that's going to be competition for mates. And this is between the sexes. So there's going to be different selective pressures between, and we're talking about humans here, between women and men. A woman can produce basically one child a year. No more than that, I'm say point, no more than one. Because you can't get pregnant while you're pregnant. You can't get pregnant during. <laughs> a guy can produce as many as he can. Right? Saying should, saying can. Hmm. And the thing is, parental investment, which is taking care of the young, actually slows the reproductive rates of men, doesn't it? If I'm busy taking care of a kid, well, that's wasting time. I could be having sex with other women. So it's interesting because humans aren't the only things that have parental investment. There's no argument there. There's all kinds of birds that do it. There's all kinds of fish that do it. All kinds of animals have parental investment. There's very few animals that don't have any parental investment. Well, I shouldn't say that. That's because that's a lie. Um, but a lot of those are insects and stuff like that. You know, when you're starting to get to things with backbones, it's pretty common to have some sort of parental investment. Now, that may be something just physiological or something behavioral, often both. The interesting thing is here, what are humans like? Are we like deer or are we like Vulcans? Deer, if you asked a male deer if he'd have sex with the female, oh, he'll just have sex with the female. And in fact, in deer, there's going to be one male that gets all the mating opportunities. And the other males stand around going, I guess I wait till next year. And of course, if you don't start track, Vulcans only mate once every seven years when they go through the pond far. Doesn't anybody watch Star Trek? So, we're some between those two. At what extreme are we? So, we can look about reproductive systems. There's a few different approaches to, to, to mating systems here. We can talk about uh, monogamy, which is one-to-one. -one. We can talk about polygyny, so there's polygamy, which is when you have one to many. There are two subtypes of po polygamy. There's polygyny, which is one male to many females, and polyandry, which is one female to many males. Okay. 85% of human reproductive, uh, of human cultures, societies, allow polygamy. I'm not saying they have them. I'm saying it's culturally not prohibited. It's not prohibited. I don't think 85% of people live in cultures where it's not prohibited. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you look at human cultures that exist, 85% of them allow this. Okay. And in fact, prohibitions on polygamy historically are very recent. This is a pretty recent thing. 
comparatively to the others. So what would be the advantage to women being polyandrous? In other words, having more than one date. Well, we can look at that. It's actually a pretty easy thing to do. So Essac, Vitale, and McGuire, and you find that women, and compared to reproductive weights of women that had affairs and women that didn't. Because that's what polyandry is. It's more than one male, right? More than one male. And there was actually no difference between women that were, that had many sex partners versus women that had the one. That shouldn't surprise us, of course. Usually the goal when you're having an affair is not to have another baby. Right? Very few women get into a, 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 let's call it an illicit relationship, if you want to call it that, thinking, oh, hopefully I can get another kid out of this. Right? So a bit of a conflict there. Nonetheless, when you look at men, men do have kids with other women that aren't there. Like if we, men that are polygamous do have a higher success rate than men that aren't. Reproductive, reproductive success. So the men are getting the women pregnant. Classy, by the way. Um, okay, humans are actually mildly polygamous, and I even mean humans living in Western industrialized society. Living in North America, Western Europe, South America, we are mildly polygamous. How does that work? Well, people divorce and remarry. That's one way to be polygamous, because it's not your lifetime. So I'm not talking about you know big love, right? You can show up a few years back. It's not very good. Subject matter was a good show. I want a good show. Sopranos. I'm just reading about marathon Sopranos again. I do it every year. I'm right in the middle of season three. And uh, Polly and Christopher were just lost in the woods chasing that Russian guy. It's the funniest thing ever. And when men remarry, they remarry younger women. Because you might think, well, everybody gets remarried, then it's going to be the same. No. Women, when they get divorced, are less likely to get married. What men do is they divorce their wife and then marry another woman who's younger. That's more common. Again, we're talking about North America and Western Europe. Um, Men remarry way more than women do. What men are doing is, quote, capturing the fertile years of women. And it's interesting, just think about this. We, we see 25-year-old women marrying 40-year-old men. It's a thing we see. And you don't go, you might go, huh, it's different. If you see a 40-year-old woman marrying a 25-year-old guy, what do you think? Well, that's really weird. And then you even have a name for them, a disparaging name. Oh, he's a cougar, right? We, we don't call guys that do that. You might think, well, you've been a creep. Right. But we all know people like this. Are we deal? Happy? They're together. And you see all the women in there. You go, oh man, that's weird. You shouldn't do that. But it's common. This is the common thing. The other way isn't common. It tells us something, and our reactions to it I think, tell us something. 
Now, the other important thing is that men are also more promiscuous than women, so when men also just screw around with their wives or their girlfriends. Not all of us, some of us are really good guys. Say it. Nice two words now. <laughs> but also, I'm just a good guy, damn it. But men are more likely to do that than women. Okay, so that basically makes us seem like deer, right? Or, 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 or baboons. And again, we're both men and women pretty choosy, aren't we? Remember, 27% of the men, so it must have been 73%, not 7, 27% of the men did not say yes to the offer of sex. No, they just said. A percentage of men said no. I can't stop looking at the crack on my iPad screen. It's so small. It's, a, it's probably been there for a year. I just noticed it. This wouldn't happen in other mammals. This just wouldn't be the thing. It would ha- happens in us. So both sexes are choosy. It just depends on what they're choosy about. The men are clearly much less choosy than the women. The women were like, no, I don't know who you are. Get away from me. Which is, by the way, the sensible reaction, it seems to me. But even, a, you know, almost a third of the guys, over the quarter of the guys, were like, no, who the hell are you? So, what do we, or what do we choosy about? And so, like, we can talk about how interesting the, the male choosiness is. The female choosiness is a lot, a lot more interesting, I think, because they're being more choosy in that term. So, Oh, this quote, beauty is in the adaptations of the beholder. So maybe we're all after good genes, both men and women. And that seems like a reasonable guess. So, and some of you guys, especially probably the biology students would hear about this, but I probably took behavioral ecology in the Michelin last year. When you think about um, attractiveness, and you think about, like, for example, brightly colored plumage in a male, you know, in, in a bird. There's a whole theory out there that that indicates resistance to parasites. Right? So parasite load, the more par- it's, it's hard to maintain nice, symmetrical, brightly colored feathers, for example, if you're full of things, mites, things like that. So attractiveness, is it related to parasite load? Hmm. And how would we know that, the humans? Well, it could be that, you know, smooth skin, uh, symmetry or something related to it. It's possible. We have to choose a mate that's most likely to produce pathogen-resistant offspring. Now, again, I don't think we do this consciously. I don't think anybody in the room has seen someone that they find attractive and say, I bet we would produce pathogen-resistant offspring. (laughs) (laughs) That's not something that comes up. See her? I'll tell you. We have some pathogen-resistant offspring, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Start using that as a line, though. Because you know, that wouldn't creep out anybody if, uh, that you were trying to pick up in a bar. You know, I think we produce pathogen-resistant offspring. <laughs> and again, 70, 70% of the men would go, yeah, does that mean we're going to have sex now? Um, <laughs> 
Because again, guys are idiots. Uh, okay, there is part of your genome, your MHC, which is a, um, it calls for your immune system. Okay? That's what it does. So we ship her for mates that are similar to most, in most characteristics, right? Because you want to have similar sort of mating. It's, it's good to have to be a little bit more than chance related. In fact, uh, ideally, your first cousin. I know that sounds gross. Um, but you want to have be somewhat similar because you're, you're actually helping your own genes. But you want to have different MHC genes because you get because then you're more you're going to produce a more robust immune system. Make sense? Okay. How could we tell that though? Well, basically, it's about how you smell. And this is really interesting because if you take people that have People find the body odor of people with different MHC genes more attractive than they find the body odor of people that have similar MHC genes. Both men and women. Are we doing this on purpose? No. Very few people, again, walk up to people and go, before we pathogen resistant offspring. I have to smell your armpits. I hope you're wearing any deodorant. And again, most guys that would turn them off, they go, okay. <laughs> I think if the number would drop below 70 odd percent, but it would still be about 50. Right? Being a guy, I know how guys' minds work good. Sure, whatever, here you go. <laughs> Women, of course, would sensibly call the authorities. <laughs> um, That's the way guys are idiots. I mean, you know, it's and again, it's 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 a it's a base, almost a sensible reproductive strategy if you can have as many children as possible. Let's say I am moral. So, so a lot of people are coming again into their class, so let's do that. So let's look at mate choice and parental investment. Men's investment is economic, and economic doesn't have to mean necessarily money. It can also be behavioral. Okay? So it's it's it, it can be giving, um, it can be like literally supporting someone with money, but it can also be bringing food home. And you know, a long time ago, that bringing food home meant hunting. Now it means going to Rome's, riding my hunting cattle. <laughs> Women's investment, again, is hugely behavioral, but it's also physiological. Women actually grow the thing inside of them, and then it comes out and it eats from them. They build their own food, women do. And if you've ever been around a woman who's nursing, the amount of liquid nursing mothers consume is mind-boggling. Getting a laugh over here. Yeah, it's mind-boggling. I remember when um, Maddie was little and Isabel was drinking... Like, I think we used to go through like 12 cans of frozen orange juice, frozen custard orange juice a week. Like, because you're just constantly drinking. Because, you know, you're actually a factory making milk. 
it doesn't just happen, it's not magic, it needs liquid and it needs nutrients to, you know, so that's what you are at that point. Also a wonderful person, blah, 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 but yeah, you're a milk factory. That's what mothers are when they're young. Don't think about it, I know it's, it's cold and calculating, and mothers are way more than that. I have one myself. But that physiological investment, men don't do that, right? The physiological investment men have is, oh, I just made some sperm, here it is. And then they, they can, they shouldn't, I don't think, but they can just leave. Women, it's like, okay, now I got it for nine months inside of you, then it comes out, and then it's going to leach off of me for like, and you know, now humans, we got, you know, two years, most people don't let their kid nurse pass two years. Usually quite a bit younger, maybe a year, maybe six months. If you look at hunter-gatherer societies, it's four-year-olds who are able to go, hey, mom, a little milk? <laughs> um, so that's some, yeah, that's, again, you go, huh? But that, so think about that investment, how long that investment was for a very long time. It's enough now that it's, if you are nursing six months or a year, maybe a year and a half. Okay, so what should men versus women prefer? Well, women should rate economic stuff, say it's your salary, that's a nice indication of economic ability, as more important than men do, in, in, in a potential mate. And again, in a heterosexual situation, there's so little stuff done on mate choice in homosexuals, and I'd love to know more about it. And every time I've taught this course, someone has tried to attack it in a paper or a, or a presentation, and there's always new stuff coming up, but it, it's so... I just love to know it. Right? Mate choice is interesting in general. But let's talk about heterosexual relationships here. Um, now, you would say that that made a lot more sense years ago than it does now. Right? Women were basically... Now, I realize that women make... Uh, what is it in Canada? It's 80-odd cents on the dollar for the same work that men did. And that's just screwy and wrong. But it's better than it was 20 years ago, and it's better than it was 40 years ago, etc. So, it should be the case then, as time's going by, because women are more in the workforce and making their own money, that they should value this less, right? Of course, right? Women are in the workforce, and socialization is important. So, we should perhaps expect that this difference is going, that any potential difference between men and women in make choice rating the importance of economic factors should go wet. Follows, doesn't it? If it's something about culture. So, one of the things you can look at is personal ads. So you can look at personal ads. You can look at, like, uh, online, which is uh, even easier now because you don't have to even read a newspaper. And you can do a search of a database. It's nice and easy to do now. Uh, compared to what used to be, you'd actually have to read them in the newspaper and do this kind of work. And then take a look at women's, how many times women mention economic stability versus men in a potential mate. And the ratio was 11 to 1 that women mention someone having a steady job. Men don't mention that. They're like, are you a woman? Full stop. That's fine. Um, now we'll see in a second. Women are, men are choosy about something different. But women are choosy much more about... And again, it's, the one there still means that 
Men mention it, but 11 times as many, many women mention that they want economic stability and potential men. You ask single women, they read more important, much more important than men do. Okay? I'm not yet, I'm not saying you ask single men, do they, do they think that their potential mate should have a, a steady job or have a good salary? They do, but they don't rate it as highly as it. Was I going to say something um, just about, like, what about, like, amount of land they own and stuff? Would that, like, go into that? Or sure. Or would it be more just, like, sure. that? Yeah. that's, you own it, so it's... Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, I think this work was done mentioning um, having a steady job. And it's interesting, I think I mentioned this, that when women make fun of someone else's mate, they make fun of the job they have, or how much money they make, or the kind of car they drive. Men don't. Men talk about the looks. Both are shallow, <laughs> right? Both are shallow. I think we define both of these things as shallow. Women are just shallow in a different way than men are. The neat thing here is, this is cross-cultural, so we can look at all kinds of different cultures here, including hunter-gatherer cultures, and you see this same pattern of the put dance. Right? So it could be about land you own. It could be about Europe, and if you're looking at hunter-gatherers, your ability, the guy's ability to make a good spear. Right? I decry your mate's resource-acquiring ability. Say that next time you want to make fun of somebody's, you know, whatever. I doubt he could acquire resources effectively. <laughs> there is no way the two of you will make children that are pathogen resistant. <laughs> and the people will just, if you want people to stop talking to you, do that. <laughs> now, there is the case that women have less power in society than men. And I think arguing with that is stupid. Because it just is obvious. It's just all around us. Right? I'm such an enlightened white guy. Um, that was a joke. Okay, so women, women prefer this. Um, maybe women prefer this because of this. They're not being structured, the, the structured parallelism. But women prefer economic things because, frankly, this is how stuff works. Maybe that's why. It's like women recognize, look, that's how it is. Men make more money even for the same job than I do, and if I'm going to be secure, so we're going to be realistic, right? So maybe it just makes sense to prefer guys. And again, it's not like women don't care about looks or other things like that. It's like that they rate the economic stuff higher than men do. Okay? So if this is the case, right? Now, I don't know if this is the case, but if women recognize that society is set up the way it is like this, maybe having that view is actually just completely sensible. It's not accepting it. It's like saying, look, this is how the world is. I don't have to like it. It should change, but this is how it is. Okay? Make sense? Yeah. I was going to say, if they were around about guys, like, they think that women don't make that much. Do you think that they would maybe go for women that have a job but also, like, come from a wealthy family? Wealthy family, maybe? The there's some interesting stuff there that, and it's more about 
It's interesting that, for example, poorer families have more girls than younger families. Because huh? girls can marry into a family. How do they control it? It's uh, a good question. I don't know the answer. It's probably got something to do with the amount of stress. And uh, something like that, stress hormones, and maybe producing more girls' voice. It could be. I don't know. But, and it's a small difference. I mean, it's statistically significant, small. Whereas rich families have more voice because they can keep the money in the family. So there's all kinds of interesting things. Again, these are small differences, by the way. It's, it's, it's not like it's 60, 40 girls to boys in poor families and like that. It's more like it's 51, 49 instead of 50, 50. Okay? These are small differences, but they're real. Um, would a guy prefer? I, I think yes, because a man's going to still rate economic uh, success positively, but he doesn't care about it as much as he cares about looks. Whereas, again, women care about looks, but they don't care about it as much as they care about economic success as a rule. And again, if you're sitting here uh, as, a, as a guy or a girl in the class thinking, I'm not like that, well, that's fine. I'm talking about averages. Do you see this, though? So it makes sense that women would just be being sensible. So it should be the case that women with much more access to power, so in fact, rich women, so it kind of gets to your, your point, Women that are doing really well, making a lot of money, um, shouldn't care about a man's earning power. Right? It's like, who cares? I have resources. I don't need somebody else's resources to help, again, uh, as far as like uh, eventually getting around to child rearing. I'm not going to need that. And again, people aren't making these calculations consciously. Nobody's saying that. But if it is the case, this is totally driven by the, the, the characteristics of the society we live in, would it not follow in that women with access to power and money would care less than women that don't have access to power and money? Does that make sense? Okay. So David Buss, who's a great evolutionary psychologist, looked at newlyweds, um, so people just got married, and he found there was no income, relation between income and importance in men and a nice positive one in women. So that's the first thing. It doesn't quite ask the question yet. But in fact, women that will probably make more money. In other words, women that were coming out of, already have like a law degree or an MBA or an MD. Things that it's guaranteed you're going to make a lot of money. Unlike, say, a PhD. It's a long time is interesting. They care more about the earning power of their potential mates than the women who were had, a, had less prospects to make money. To make lots of money, we'll say. Now, let's view this. So right at first, you go, yeah, that makes sense. I see what's going on, evolution, etc. And again, maybe the women are like, I'm going to be a free... Freeze, well, freeze okay. What the hell? I'm going to be free of having to depend on my husband for money. That's good. That's that would feel good, I imagine. I, I'm happy when I don't have to take money from my husband. What? Um, it's not me. <laughs> Maybe it's like, well, I don't want... I, I, made, I work this hard to get... to become a... I don't know. It's a lawyer. It'd be okay. I work this hard to go to law school... 
I don't want some loser guy leeching off of me. So maybe women are actually making that calculation. So it doesn't, I don't think this is nearly the case, nearly as strong a case as I think the book makes this out to be, and as Dave Buss made this out to be. So I think you could explain this one of two ways. That's all I'm saying. You could also explain it as women just going, I finally have money and power, and now I'm going to have to carry some loser? No, thank you. Right? I hope all of you in here that are in certain in relationships are sitting there reevaluating it based on these, please. <laughs> I don't want that happening. Any of you, please. We're all shallow. <laughs> just, just, remember that. Women and men are shallow just in different ways. Um, okay, what do men want? <laughs> That's what men want. Women. Lots and lots of women. Um, this, in fact, comes, that line, in fact, comes from a presentation a student gave when I was at Fata Course. Well, a paranormal behavior in Newfoundland, and an old student of mine, Wayne would know, Lori Target, uh, gave a, uh, that was her title presentation. The subtitle was Women, Lots and Lots of Fertile Women. So I want to give Lori credit up there. Lori just had a baby, which is exciting as hell. And you know, you're old, and all your Facebook friends that used to be your students all have houses and children. Um, okay, what do men like? Men like youth, right? They like clear skin. They really like symmetry. No, women like symmetry too. Women don't rate guys good looking that have one eye two centimeters higher than the other. I always, I, I actually, there's a certain person I know that none of you guys know who I'm actually picturing right now who looks like that. Um, really decent guy too, but I'm not up here. Well, okay, it wasn't down right his chin, but I mean. <laughs> One of the things that men like is a certain waist-to-hip ratio. So it's the ratio, it's not, and it's interesting because when you ask men, um, we ask women what body type men prefer, and the interesting, the weird thing is that women seem to think that men like really, really thin women. And the interesting thing is you ask guys, and you ask them, look, you show them line drawings, both, both sexes, women and men, of, um, of the outline of a body shape of a woman or a man. Um, women think that guys prefer about a size 2, and men prefer actually about a size 10. Yeah, probably that one. That's a line drawing. So it's just interesting to keep, just keep that in mind, but don't get all obsessed with things. You want to worry about something, worry about things. I'm kidding, please. Um, why is that? Well, for some reason, when you have the optimal amount to produce, to be fertile, of estrogen, it actually deposits fat on your hips versus your waist at a ratio of 0.7. Huh? Yeah. So it's not about, it's about the, 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 the ratio of your waist to your hips. It should be about 0.7. And by the way, again, this is one of those things where it's cross-cultural. You can show guys from all different parts of the world. They're, again, line drawings, and they prefer a 0.7 waist to hip ratio. Because it indicates something. It indicates fertility. I don't want anybody going home and measuring themselves. 
and I don't want anybody going home and measuring their name. <laughs> it's just a very strange thing that it comes out this way and it correlates really nicely with how fertile someone is. There's all kinds of interesting stuff here. For example, and I'll just end on this. These are this is somewhat different than what I have next, so I'm not going to talk because I won't talk with what's next yet. But I can tell you, for example, when you look at the size of tips that strippers get. They're bigger when they're ovulating. How do men detect that? I don't know. Are they I don't know. But that's a thing. By the way, when guys are out watching strippers, which always makes me comfortable, do you think they're looking for people to have children with? No. But they find it more attractive than it's ovulating. And I'll leave you on that somewhat strange note. Thanks, guys.
This podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.